Section 34 of The Three Commanders. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Leonard Hardy, Calgary, Alberta. The Three Commanders by William Henry Giles Kingston. Chapter 24, Part 2. Daylight now appeared and a glimpse was caught of the sun through an opening in the cloud just above the horizon. His rays fell on a hilly country, richly wooded with streams flowing down at the bottom of the valleys, one of which emptied itself directly opposite the break in the reef by which they had entered. As yet no natives had appeared, nor were any huts seen, but it could scarcely be supposed that so fine a region was destitute of inhabitants. Green, therefore, pointed out to his men the importance of acting cautiously. Their hunger and thirst, however, must be satisfied. He therefore pulled in toward the mouth of the stream, where, at all events, they could obtain water. As they approached, Billy's sharp eyes detected some coconuts, growing on several tall trees a short distance from the beach. These could afford them food until more substantial fare could be obtained. The difficulty, however was to reach the trees where the fruit grew. "'I'll manage to do it,' cried Billy, "'in a way I have read of somewhere, with a rope round my waist.' Some rocks near the mouth of the stream afforded sufficient shelter to the boats, and enabled the party to land without the necessity of beaching them. The arms had all been made ready for use, and Green ordered one half of the men to remain in the boats under Tom's command, while he led the other— who carried the breakers to fill with water. Billy, in the meantime, with Archie to assist him, prepared to climb up a coconut tree. He had brought a long piece of rope, which he formed into a large grummet, or hoop, round the tree. He made several attempts, however, before he could succeed in getting up even a few feet. Though Archie laughed at him, he was undaunted. Practice makes perfect, he answered, again working his way upward till he got several feet higher. His plan was to hold tight with his knees while he jerked the grummet as high as it would go, and then to swarm up again and rest. Higher and higher he got, till at length he was able to catch hold of a branch by which he held himself up, when, highly delighted, he quickly broke off all the fruit on the tree and threw them down to Archie. His success encouraged the bowman in Green's boat, who, being a light, active lad, succeeded even better than he had done and a supply of nuts for all was thus obtained. By this time Green's party with the breakers had returned, and the hungry crews eagerly commenced breakfast. "'We must look for more substantial fare than this, though,' observed Tom. "'If we can't get any animals on shore, we shall, at all events, be able to find shellfish in the water, and we can easily light a fire and cook them.' Till, however, the men had satisfied their hunger with the coconuts, no one felt disposed to hunt for shellfish or for animals on shore. It was, indeed, doubtful whether it would be prudent to allow any of the men to go inland till they had ascertained what inhabitants were in the neighborhood, or whether they were likely to be friendly. From the character of the natives on the surrounding islands, Green very much doubted whether this would be the case, and he wished, if possible, to avoid bloodshed even though his party might prove victorious, he had also heard that they used poisoned arrows, 
even a slight wound from which might prove fatal. As the gale still continued blowing outside, it was absolutely necessary that more substantial food should be found. As soon, therefore, as they had somewhat taken the edge off their appetites, he allowed a small party under Tom to proceed along the beach in search of shellfish, while the boats pulled slowly along close into the shore, so as to be able to take them off immediately, should any natives appear. No officer could have acted more wisely and cautiously. Tom and his party collected a good supply of shellfish, his last find being a bed of oysters. Two of the men, having stripped off their clothes, waded up to their necks and dived for them. They were thus employed when Green caught sight of a dark triangular fin, which rose for an instant to the surface and disappeared. He shouted at the top of his voice to the men, telling them of their danger and ordering his own crew to pull in and to splash the water as much as possible with their oars. The men sprang towards the shore, fully aware of the danger they were in. They were not a moment too soon, for the monster, having caught sight of their white legs, dashed forward and almost grounded itself on the beach before giving a whisk of its tail. It darted off again, startled by their shouts and cries, and escaped. Tom now cried out that he had seen some birds and that if he might use some small shot, he was certain that he could kill several. Green, seeing no sign of natives, thought there would be no risk, and gave him leave. Tom was a good shot, and the birds, a species of pigeons, being unaccustomed to firearms, were not frightened, so that he very quickly made a heavy bag, without having to go far for it. There appeared to be now no reason why the party should not land to cook their provisions, and— Finding a clear stretch of beach, they pulled in and hauled up the boats. Some of the men set to work to gather sticks, and a blazing fire was soon lighted, while others plucked the pigeons and prepared them for the spit. These were placed on forked sticks around the fire, while the men sat down on the ground to enjoy themselves. A few cried out for grog, but not a drop of spirits had been brought, so they were obliged to go without it but the smokers had their pipes and tobacco, and Green had put his cigar case into his pocket, so that they were able to pass the time pleasantly enough while the birds were cooking. After all, we've no great cause to complain, observed Dom, as he lighted one of Green's cigars. I suppose when the gale abates, the ship will come look for us, or if not, we shall have no great difficulty in getting back to Santa Cruz while in the meantime we may make ourselves happy where we are, he observed. Billy Blueblazes, of course, echoed the sentiment, but Archie was somewhat doubtful whether they might not miss the ship, as it would take them the best part of two days to pull back, and before that time she probably would have come out to look for them. Green was rather inclined to be of Archie's opinion, and was considering what, under the circumstances, it was best to do. "'Dinner ready, sir,' said Jerry Bird, who had dished up the pigeons with some large leaves. "'We have broiled oysters and mussels and coconut for dessert, and as much milk and water as we like to drink. A feast fit for a king.' Green and the midshipmen preferred the pigeons, leaving the shellfish to be divided among the men, who had their share also of the birds. No one had cause to complain of want of sufficient food. After dinner, their spirits being raised, they amused themselves by playing rounders, varied by a game of leapfrog on the beach. 
till Green reminded them that they might have a couple of nights or more at sea before they could get back to the ship, and that it was as well to take some rest while they could obtain it. The difficulty was to find shade, as the sun was beating down with intense heat on the sand, though while they were in exercise they did not think of it. The palm trees afforded but scant shelter. However, by going a little way inland, they obtained some enormous fern leaves, with which they quickly built several huts, sufficient to shelter all the party, with the exception of two, who were stationed on the top of the bank to keep watch, Green deeming it prudent not to run any risk of being caught napping. It fell to the lot of Archie and Tim Nolan, who belonged to Green's boat, to keep the first watch. Green directed them to remain in the shade under the trees with their muskets in their hands and to keep a bright lookout inland so as to be able to rouse the party in good time should any natives appear. There was an opening in the valley just where the party were encamped, extending an eighth of a mile or so inland, leaving the trees on either side some distance apart. Archie took one side and directed Tim to get into the shade of the other so that they might thus, without having to step far out into the sun, command the whole of the open ground. Archie felt very tired and sleepy, and was longing for his watch to be over. But, nonetheless, obedient to orders, he kept a bright lookout, seeing also that Tim did the same. They had been on the watch for nearly two hours when Archie, as he stepped out a few paces from where he had been standing, caught sight of three or four black figures at the farther end of the glade. They stopped as they saw him, regarding him with looks of astonishment, each man seizing an arrow and fixing it in his bow. Archie shouted to Tim and told him to waken the sleepers, while he himself entered into the center of the glade, and while he held up his musket in one hand to show the blacks that he was armed, made signs with the other to them to keep back. Green had heard his voice and was on his feet in an instant, calling out to the rest of the party to show themselves. The blacks, seeing that the strangers were much superior to them in numbers, did not advance. They were savage-looking fellows, with their hair tied up in a huge bunch at the backs of their heads, and destitute of any clothing with the exception of a short kilt of matting tied round their waists. They appeared rather surprised than alarmed and after watching the strangers, apparently to see what they would do for some minutes, they darted off among the trees and were hid from sight. We will get the boats into the water and be ready to shove off, in case those fellows should come down in overwhelming numbers, for though we may keep them at bay, I am anxious to avoid bloodshed, said Green. Tom agreed with him, and the men immediately began to launch the boats, but the tide had fallen, and it was no easy matter, as they had to shove them over the rough beach for some distance. While they were thus engaged, loud shrieks and shouts reached their ears, proceeding out of the forest, and in another minute a whole host of the blacks, armed with bows and arrows, spears and clubs, poured into the open, and came rushing down towards them. It seemed scarcely possible to get the boats afloat before the savages would be upon them. Green waited till the last moment, then, calling the men, drew them up on the beach and ordered them to present their muskets, but not to fire until he should give the word. The blacks, who were apparently well acquainted with the power of firearms, 
on seeing the force opposed to them, not only halted, but drew back several paces, bending their bows, however, as if they were about to shoot. Green, on seeing this, made signs to them to retire, pointing at the same time to his men's muskets to let the savages understand that they only waited his command to fire. The blacks evidently understood him, for they at once relaxed their bowstrings, turning their heads over their shoulders as if about to beat a retreat. Just then, however, a chief made his appearance and began to harangue them, urging them, it seemed, to attack the strangers who had ventured to land on their shore. The moment was a critical one. Green saw that he might be compelled to order his men to fire, and should the savages have sufficient courage to rush out and attack them before they had time to reload, they must be clubbed or speared. He knew, too, that the black's arrows were poisoned, and that every person wounded by them would die. He would gladly have retreated to the boats, and made another effort to get them afloat, but should he show any sign of fear, it would to a certainty encourage the blacks to come on. Stand ready, my lads, he cried. I'll try once more to make the savages understand that we don't wish to quarrel with them and taking up a bow which formed part of one of the huts, he waved it slowly backwards and forwards. The effect at first appeared to be satisfactory, but just then the voice of the old chief who had before incited them to attack the strangers was again heard, and the savages, encouraged by him, once more drew their bows, while he, flourishing his club, came forward at their head, leaping and bounding in the strangest fashion, his followers imitating his example. "'Tim Nolan!' shouted Green. "'As soon as I give the word, pick that fellow off. "'If Tim misses to you, Bird, give an account of him. "'Don't throw a shot away, my lads, "'and we'll make them repent interfering with us.' Green wisely said nothing about the deadly effect of the poisoned arrows, hoping that the men would not think about them. Just as Green was about to sing out fire, Feeling that it was useless any longer to entertain hopes of maintaining peace with the savages, a strange-looking being leaped out from their midst, armed only with a club, which, placing himself in front of the chief, he whirled round and round in his face, shouting at the same time at the top of his voice. He was a white man, though scarcely better clothed than the blacks, his body being tattooed all over with strange devices while his long, carroty hair hung down over his shoulders. No one attempted to interfere with him. Even the chief came to a standstill, while he bounded backwards and forwards in front of the hordes of savages, shouting and gesticulating in the most vehement manner conceivable. Having thus succeeded in stopping the advance of the blacks, he turned round and rushed forward towards where Green was standing. Ah, sure, Master Green, it's myself. Paddy Casey is delighted to see ye. Oh, little was I after thinking, when I last set eyes on ye, that the next time you'd see me I'd be turned into a wild savage, he exclaimed. What? Pat Casey, my man, cried Green. Of course, I remember you right well. Though I confess I shouldn't have expected to see you, one of the smartest hands on board the Tudor, in your present style of dress. Pat, looking at himself, gave a broad Irish grin. 
Sure enough, Your Honor, and bad luck to them who left me here, thinking I'd be killed and cooked and eaten, about which I'll have to be telling, Your Honor, when there's more time than at present. I've just been informing these black friends of mine that they were fools to come and attack you, seeing that you belong to a mighty big ship, which would come and blow their island right out into the sea in a quarter last of no time. And now I've got them to be peaceable. It would be as well to take advantage of the opportunity to get the boats afloat, for by my faith they're not the most dependable of people, and in another moment they may again change their minds. I am much obliged to you, old shipmate, answered Green, and if you can manage to keep the blacks quiet, we will have the boats in the water in a few minutes. Tell them we were driven by the storm on their island, that we wish to be good friends with them, as with all the people in these parts, and, provided they behave well to us, we will do them no harm. Sure, Your Honor, I'll tell them all that in just anything else that may come into my head at the same time, and I'll answer for it that they'll be decently behaved as long as you stay, said Pat. Just keep them in play, then, while we get the boats afloat, and make them understand that we go away because it is our good pleasure and not because we are afraid of them, said Green. Sure, Your Honor, I'll do that, answered the Irishman, with one of his inimitable grins, which possibly had been the means of enabling him to preserve his life. While he went back to his black friends, the two crews, uniting their strength, got first one boat afloat and then the other. Green felt greatly relieved, for whatever turn events might take, he and his party would be able to get away without having to fight for their lives. Casey now returned. Decided to say, sir, that if you like to stop and be friends, they'll be friends with you. But I'm after thinking that the sooner you can get away from this, the better. For they're not altogether trustworthy gentlemen. Not long ago, a sandalwood trader put in here and set her boat ashore when they knocked every mother's son of the crew on the head and ate them afterwards. To be sure, the Englishmen hadn't behaved altogether properly, for once before, when they had been here, they employed the natives to cut a cargo of sandalwood for them, and when they had got it on board, they refused to pay what they had promised, saying that they would come back again, and that it would then be time enough to talk about payment. When they saw you, they thought that you were people of the same sort, and so were going to treat you as they had done the others. I must confess, said Green, that the Englishmen met their deserts. But how did you manage to escape, my man? And what brought you to the island? Ah, your honor, that's a long story. And about the escaping, it was a narrow squeak I had for it. You see, when I was paid off from the Tudor at Portsmouth, I went up to London, when I entered on board an immigrant ship bound out to Sydney. Well, I was on shore one day and had been taking my grog pretty freely. A chap I had never set eyes on before hailed me as an old chum, and telling me he was now skipper of a fine schooner, asked me if I would join her, and promised that I should fill my pockets with gold in a few months. As they were just turned clean inside out, and I had my spree on shore, without any more ado I closed with them, and before I knew where I was going. I found myself stowed away on board the schooner, which at daybreak next morning sailed out of Sydney Harbour. The craft, I discovered, 
was engaged in the sandalwood trade, cruising among the islands and getting it as best she could, sometimes in one way and sometimes in another. In very curious ways they were. We made several trips, and each time we came back with a full cargo. At some places we got the natives to cut the wood and bring it off, paying them with beads and trinkets when they were content with such things. It others with rum, muskets and powder and shot. When no natives appeared, we went on shore ourselves to cut the wood. At last the skipper took a new dodge, for he was in no ways particular. Having put into a harbor where the natives were friendly, he enticed above three dozen off, making them large promises if they would cut the wood for him, and undertaking to bring them home again as soon as he had done the job. All seemed very fair and above board. We had once sailed for one of the islands to the westward, which is inhabited by blacks of a terribly fierce character, but where plenty of sandalwood grows. Having landed our passengers, we went on shore, well armed to keep the natives at bay, while they were employed in cutting the wood. They worked well, and we quickly got a full cargo. Now, as the wind was from the eastward, and it would have taken us a fortnight or more to beat back to the island from which we had brought our laborers. While it was fair for Sydney, the skipper had no fancy to lose so much time. What he did do, therefore, but send the poor fellows back again, telling them they must remain and cut another cargo while he went to Sydney, and that he would come back and take them off. Knowing the character of the natives, they did not like this at all, and begged hard to be taken on board saying that they would go on to Sydney, or anywhere else, rather than remain. In truth, it was a terribly cruel thing the skipper was doing. And I and another man told him so, and declared that when we got to Sydney, we would make the matter known. He replied that we had better not, but said nothing more. The long and the short of it is that the poor brown men were left behind, and it's my belief that one and all of them were killed and eaten before many days were over by the cannibal blacks. The night after we sailed it came on to a hard blow, and the next morning when I came on deck to keep my watch, I was told that Ned Mole, the man I spoke of, had been washed overboard. I had my thoughts about it, and couldn't help saying that I was sure there had been foul play. I'd better have held my tongue. In a few hours it fell dead calm just as we were off this here island. The skipper observing that he thought there would be some sandalwood on it, had one of the boats lowered, telling me to come in her. I, of course, went, without thinking that any harm was intended me. As no natives were seen, we at once landed. When the skipper ordered me to accompany him with an axe, saying that we would have a look for sandalwood, we had come some distance when at length we discovered some tree of the sort we were in search of. Now, Casey, says the skipper, do you cut as much as you think the boat's crew can carry, and I'll go back and fetch them up. I should like to have a sample of this wood, as it seems somewhat different to what we've got on board. Oi, oi, sir, I answered, and, taking off my jacket and tucking up my sleeves, I began chopping away. I thought the skipper was a long time in coming back for I had cut even more than he was likely to want. I waited and waited, but still saw nothing of my shipmates. At last I began to have some uncomfortable feelings about the matter. Shouldering my axe, 
I made my way down to the beach. I need not tell you, sir, how I felt, when I could nowhere find the boat, and saw the schooner standing away to the southward for the breeze had again sprung up. I shouted and shrieked, but she was too far off for those on board either to see me or hear me, and I felt sure that the skipper had left me behind on purpose, and had probably told his crew that I had been knocked on the head by the savages, or had met with some other fate. I was dancing about, shouting out, and tearing my hair with rage at being so treated, when, turning around, I saw standing close to me a dozen black fellows. They were all staring at me, wondering what I was about. I was too full of rage to feel frightened, and so, forgetting that they couldn't understand me, I began to tell them how I had been treated. They jabbered away in return, and I shouted louder and louder, thinking to make them understand what had happened, while holding my axe in my hand, which I flourished in the air. I leaped backwards and forwards as if I was a madman. In truth, I felt very like one. At last, one of the blacks, who seemed to be a chief by the big rings he wore in his nose and ears, and the long feathers stuck in the top of his head, came forward, waving a green bow, and then, putting out his hand, took mine, which he rubbed on his flat nose. It was a sign that he wished to be friends, and by that time, as I began to get a little cool, I saw that it would be wise to make the best of a bad matter. So I took his hand and rubbed it on my nose, and behaved to all the party in the same manner. From that time, the blacks treated me with great respect. Whether they had seen any other white men before that, I cannot tell. But at all events they saw that I was superior to themselves, and maybe they took me for a prophet or a great medicine man, or something of that sort. The chief had fixed his eyes on my axe, but I gave him to understand that I would not part with that. However, wishing to please him, I took off my jacket, and made him put it on, which pleased him amazingly, and bound him to me as a friend. It is my belief from what I saw of them afterwards that if they had found me sitting down and bemoaning my hard fate, they would have knocked me on the head and cooked me before the day was over. So I had reason to think myself in luck. The natives, I found, lived on the other side of the island, and for some reason or other which I could never make out, seldom came over to this side. They at once took me with them, and when we got to their village, which consists of a number of small huts not much bigger than beehives, the chief introduced me to his wives, who made me sit down on the ground, and brought me out some food, which I was very glad to get, seeing I was pretty hungry by this time. In return, having nothing else to offer the chief lady, I took off my shirt and put it on her, which pleased her as much as my jacket had her husband. It was not pleasant to go without clothing, though I still held on to my trousers, but it was better than being killed, and I thought if I could make the chief and his wife my friends, I might be able to live pretty pleasantly among the people. I succeeded even better than I had expected, and from that day became a sort of prime minister to the chief and general of his army. I found, however, that another of his wives was jealous of the first, who had got the shirt, so, thinking to please her, I made myself this here petticoat, and presented her with my trousers, and she didn't fancy putting them on the right way, 
she threw them over her shoulders and wears them in that fashion to this day. Well, Pat, you have indeed a narrow escape of your life, observed Green. Do you wish to live on with your friends? Arr, no, Your Honor. "'Tisn't for a decent man like me to desire altogether to turn into a savage," said Pat. "'I'm mighty eager to get back to the old country to see once more my brothers and sisters and the rest of the Casey family, so if you will take me with you and supply me with a pair of trousers and a shirt, I'm ready to go off at once, though I shouldn't like you appear on board without some decent covering to my skin.' "'I shall be very glad to take you,' said Green." "'But will the chief be willing to part with his prime minister? "'I'm afraid the whole country will go to rack and ruin if you leave him.' "'I'm afraid, Your Honor, that I must leave the country to look after itself,' "'answered Pat, with one of the broadest of his grins. "'And as to axing the chief about the matter, "'I'm after thinking it will be better to take French leave, "'lest he may try to stroke me. "'The weather, I see, is moderating.' and if your honor will take my advice, you'll shove off as soon as it is calm enough to put to sea. We can't go without food, and it will take us some time to collect enough to last till we find the ship, said Green. Then I'll tell my friends that they must bring us some, for not a rap of salary have I had since I became prime minister, and if they were to load the boats up to the thwarts, we wouldn't be overpaid for the good I have done the state, said Fat and, flourishing his axe in the fashion he had found so effective, he made his way back to where the blacks were now seated on the ground, discussing apparently some important matter or other. The chief listened to him for some time, and he and his people, then getting up, disappeared among the trees in the distance. "'I've done it, Your Honor,' said Pat, who quickly returned. "'They'll soon be back with as much as we require for some days to come.' While the savages were away, a fire was lighted, and the remainder of the shellfish and the birds which Tom had shot were cooked. The boats were also got ready, so that they might put to sea as soon as the provisions arrived, or, in case the natives after all should prove treacherous, shove off at a moment's notice. Green knew well the danger of an encounter with savages armed with poisoned arrows. A shower of such arrows might wound every one of the party and he was aware that even slight hurts might prove fatal. At length the blacks made their appearance, carrying baskets containing taro, coconut, several other roots and fruits, and some fish of various sizes. By Pat's direction they were placed on the ground, when Green, not wishing to take them without payment, collected some handkerchiefs and clasp knives, and a few other articles, which he desired Pat to convey to the chief. This unexpected gift afforded intense satisfaction to the savages, who would have rushed forward and rubbed noses with the strangers, had not Pat hinted to his friends that such a proceeding would not be appreciated by the white men. The blacks, having set down their baskets, retired, and they were forthwith conveyed to the boats. While the natives were absent, Tom had wisely refilled the breakers. "'Now's your time, Your Honor,' cried Casey who feared that his friends might suspect his intention of leaving them. The men, by Green's direction, retired quietly to the boats, Pat trying to keep himself concealed among them, and while they were embarking, he also jumped in and stowed himself away in the stern sheets of Green's boat. 
Shove off, your honor, he shouted out, or they'll be coming down to stop me. Before the boats had got a half a cable's length from the shore, the chief discovered that his prime minister had disappeared, and suspecting that he had gone off with the white men, he and his tribe came rushing down to the beach shouting vociferously for him to come back. That is more than Oyentin doing, cried Pat from the bottom of the boat. The surf had by this time considerably gone down, and the sea was sufficiently smooth to enable the boats to steer a direct course for Santa Cruz. Green could, therefore, only hope that the ship might not have left the harbor to look for them, as, in that case, they would in all probability miss each other. End of Section 34 Recording by Leonard Hardy, Calgary, Alberta